0: This is from the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thanks, Emma. I don't know if you've seen the TV show, The Office, but if you're familiar, uh, the, there's an episode where the manager, Michael, uh, it comes to his attention that he's wearing a woman's suit. He didn't realize it. He's just, he's just showed up at work, and he's wearing a woman's suit. And every, when everyone starts to notice it, they start looking closer. They start laughing. They start pointing features out that he didn't realize, like, oh, my goodness, it has shoulder pads, and uh, why are there no pockets on it? And, uh, he, he, you know, it cuts, and he explains in this kind of talking head how he acquired this suit. And here's what he says. He says, there were these huge bins of clothes and everyone was rifling through them. It was crazy. And I grabbed one and it fit. So I don't think it's totally just a woman's suit. At the very least, it's bisexual. <laughs> and they ask him, they're, they're as they're kind of laughing and making these jokes at his expense, they're like, who made it? Who's the designer? And he opens up the coat and it's pink. And the label right here says miss Tyrius." miss and he says, uh, see, it is mysterious, that's why the buttons are on the wrong side, it's, it's a mystery, and he keeps saying it's a European cut, they don't wear, they don't have pockets in Italy, and so there's this whole thing, and, you know, he's, he's you know, it's, it's this ridiculous moment, but I bring that up because I thought it was interesting that clothes are uh, what we use to determine who belongs, Who's in and who's out? And here's somebody who's clearly wearing the wrong thing, and so everyone's laughing. They're taking out their, you know, 2006 cell phones and and taking pictures of him. And um, it's uh, clothes are what determines who's in and who's out. This is why uh, whenever you're invited to a party, especially in the South, you'll ask this question of like, oh, what are people wearing? If this is like a formal attire, you don't want to be the person that shows up in cargo shorts and flip-flops. I don't know. Maybe you do. But uh, th- this, w- what's fascinating about this whole thing is that this vision, you know, what we're doing this summer is we're working our way through this really strange book called Zechariah. It's in the Hebrew Scriptures. And uh, it-, it comes in these kind of weird series of bizarro, wacky visions. And the vision that Emma just read for us is about somebody who's wearing the wrong clothes. It's about this high priest named Joshua who's supposed to be wearing clean stuff. And it says that he's wearing filthy stuff. And so really what what this uh, vision is really about, it's about cleansing. It's about cleanliness. But cleanliness is really a metaphor throughout the Bible that's really about belonging. That if you are clean, you're acceptable. You're worthy. You fit. You have access into the circle. If you are unclean, You don't belong. You're unworthy. You're you're cast out. And so here's what I want to do. I want to look at cleansing really under three headings for us this morning. Why we need it in the first place. Number two, how you get it. And then number three, why it matters. Cleansing, why you need it, how to get it, why it matters. First, uh, why we need it. Well, look, look, at, look at the vision. Verse 1, Joshua was the high priest in Zechariah's day, and with that, we have this picture of he's, he's coming before the Lord on behalf of the people of Israel. He's representing his, his people to make an offering, and uh, this would have been something that the high priest would have done once a year on the um, Day of Atonement. It's a big deal. He he would spend the whole week preparing, cleansing, cleaning to make himself, uh, you know, he could approach God in this kind of cleanly state. Because you can't just approach God on behalf of all the people as is. You can't just show up as is. So they would spend a whole week cleaning. Kind of like how a surgeon can't just go into surgery just, you know, having come straight from McDonald's or whatever. You've got to scrub up. You've got to sanitize. You've got to get clean. Only here is this person who's supposed to be clean, but if you notice in verse 3, it says he's standing there with filthy garments. Now, the word filthy in Hebrew doesn't mean he has like a mustard stain on his shirt. It means something similar to, picture a porta potty that has been used at an outdoor music festival over an extended weekend, and then someone empties that porta potty on you. That's how graphic the word filthy is in Hebrew. He's covered in everything that is foul, everything that is revolting, everything that's disgusting. And so here he is, and he's representing God's people, and he's filthy. And the imagery is fairly. Uh, clear. The point is, is that God's people are a mess. God's people are objectively guilty before God. That's what this filth represents. It represents guilt. That God has told humanity, I want you to love God and I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. And we have decided to not do that. And so we are covered in our failure. We're covered in our sin. We're covered in our character defects. We are unworthy. We do not belong in God's presence. Now, I know you hear that, especially for modern ears. You, you hear that and you think, good grief, that sounds so shamey and mean and fundamentalistic. The Bible look at you and say, you are a dirty, filthy sinner. And uh, But here's where I actually think that the Bible is tapping into something that's, that's very helpful and a, and a lot more nuanced than you might realize and might... Uh, be willing to give the Bible credit for. For example, about 10 years ago, Dove Soap did this commercial series where they brought in an FBI sketch artist and they, they put this guy in a chair and he had his little pad of paper right here. And then they had this curtain partitioning him off and then they would bring in this woman and she would sit down in the chair. So the, the artist can't see the woman and the woman can't see the artist Blocked off by this curtain, and she would describe herself to him, and he's sketching, and she's saying, you know, she—he's asking her, you know, tell me about your cheeks, describe your chin, and he draws this picture, and then he finishes, flips the page over, and she gets up and leaves, and then somebody else comes and sits down, who's one of her friends, and now the second person is describing the first person, so he starts drawing again, again a partition, only now. Two different drawings, same person. The first one is of how she sees herself, and the second one is how other people and her friends see her. And when it gets finished, you can compare these two pictures, and they bring the original person in, and they have this, you know, kind of dramatic commercial, and it's, and it's fascinating, but it's also, like, so heartbreaking. Because you would imagine the first picture, she is unattractive, she's cold her features look like she's um, mean almost. In the second picture, how other people see her and experience her. she's bright, she's warm, she's attractive. And you wonder, OK, there's something going on in that person. There's some voice, some message inside of her that says that I see myself as ugly. I see myself as unacceptable. I see myself as unclean. And that voice, as you know, is inside of all of us. All of us have this voice inside of us that are telling us, there's something wrong with you. you are, you're not the right kind of person. We, we all sense this um, deep sense of, of uncleanliness. You know, it's fascinating. In our cultural moment, we, we've kind of gotten rid of objective moral standards. We've gotten rid of the idea of God We've gotten, re- gotten rid of the idea of objective moral guilt, and yet it hasn't dealt with the feelings that we all still carry around. For example, the fact that millions and millions and millions of people flock to and have seen the Brene Brown TED Talk on shame and vulnerability and consume all of her stuff. Why? Because she's putting language to this thing that we all feel. We don't feel like we're right. We don't feel like we're enough. And now we have words that somebody's finally telling us, yes, that's what it feels like to be me. This is one of the reasons that I think is driving social media, is that we, we, we post our things, we post our pictures, and we post our articles, and we're just screaming, begging for the internet to tell us that we're okay, that we're enough, that we're clean, we're trying to counteract this thing inside of us that's screaming at us, you're unclean. You're dirty. You're not right. You're not enough. Now, here's the question. Where in the world does that voice come from? Where does that voice come from? Look, at, um, look back at the vision. In verse 1, it says, and Satan, standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now, this is almost like a courtroom scene where you've got Joshua on trial and you've got Satan right there acting like a prosecutor who's just submitting all the evidence, listing out all of the things that Joshua has done wrong to accuse him. You see how guilty he is? You see how wrong he is? Now, I know anytime you start talking about Satan, everything kind of gets a little weird because I'm sure some of y'all are like, Satan? Like, Satan, really? Like, y'all believe in Vecna from you know, Stranger Things. That's what y'all are into at Redeemer. Um, but again, this is where I think it's, it's, the Bible is a lot more helpful than you might realize. Because all of us feel that voice. Maybe not audibly, but just the sense inside of you. And you wonder, okay, if that voice is coming from just me, why would I do that to myself? And why not just stop? That doesn't feel good. That voice of... Maybe you've heard it. It feels like this. Um, You don't deserve friends. You don't deserve to be loved. You don't deserve to belong. If that voice just came from your own head, just say, just quit. But it, it feels like you're being oppressed. It feels like you're being accused. In fact, you know that the word Satan, the Hebrew word Satan, just means accuser. It feels like there's somebody accusing you. I know this is mysterious and complex, and I don't fully understand it. But here's what, well, here's what it might feel like for you right now, for you to be sitting here right here this morning, and, and you feel this sense inside of you that says, okay, so you're going to show up at church, and you're going to smile, and you're going to worship, and you looked at porn last night. You're a fake. You're a fraud. You don't believe this stuff. Or maybe you hear this voice and it says, um, okay, you're going you're to smile and you're going to be bright and, and excited to see people at church on Sunday and you're going to be enthusiastic when you know you screamed at your family like a monster on the way over here. You're a fake. Now, you don't have to be religious to feel this. You don't have to be spiritual to feel this. We all, deep down, feel like frauds. We all feel like hypocrites. Um, For example, back in 2016, NPR did this interview with Tom Hanks. Now you think about Tom Hanks, mega movie star, super successful, super beloved. You remember in uh, the, kind of the early days of COVID when Tom Hanks had it and he was in Australia and we, everyone freaked out and we were like, 2020 has been so mean and terrible. It's taken everything. Don't take Tom Hanks from us, please. Here's this person that if you would think if there's anybody because of his success, because of how much the world just loves him, this is somebody that wouldn't wrestle with this. This is somebody who wouldn't struggle with this. Here's what he says in this interview. Quote, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, there comes a point where you think, how did I get here, and am I going to be able to continue this? When, when are they going to discover that I am, in fact, a fraud and take everything away from me? It's a high wire act that we all walk. And I do this in the work that I do because there are days when I know that 3 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, I am going to have to deliver some degree of emotional goods. And if I can't do it, that means I'm going to have to fake it. And if I fake it, that means they may catch me at faking it. And if they catch me at faking it, well, then it's just doomsday. It's Tom Hanks. Now, he is articulating what we all feel. We all feel like frauds. We all feel accused. We all feel unclean. That's why we need cleansing, because we are unclean, and we know it. And we try to get out from under it. We try to scrub it off with social media and virtue and and self-affirmation and telling us that we're great, and yet it doesn't get deep enough to get rid of it. So how do we get rid of it? How do we get it? How do we get the cleansing? Well, let's look, at, let's look at this next. Here's the next thing, how we get it. God sees Joshua covered in his filth, port-a-potty filth, and God rebukes not Joshua but his accuser. Did you see that in verse 2? God says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, Satan, shut your face. These are my people. I have delivered them. They are mine, and I will make them right. And here's what he does. Look at verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. God doesn't look at Joshua and say, hey, you really need to clean yourself up. Go home, take a shower, put on some clean clothes, and then let's repeat this. He doesn't say, I want you to go out and I want you to do a bunch of good stuff. And if it outweighs all the bad stuff that you've done, then we can talk. He doesn't say, hey, I want you to tell yourself that you're beautiful and that you're good and you're the right kind of person and when you start to believe it, then show up. He just intervenes. I'm just gonna take the filth off of you. It's just a complete unprovoked act of grace. I'm gonna take your filth and remove it, which is, of course, just this picture of forgiveness, this gracious willingness of God to remove that which is wrong in us, to clean our record. Forgiveness is amazing, but here's the thing, it's not enough. Let's say that you're invited to this bougie, fancy pants wedding, you know, the kind where people wear, you know, the women wear the nice dresses and the high heels and the men have the tuxes and the cummerbunds, which is a bizarre item for anyone to wear but cummerbunds and then you know tux you know uh, tails formal and on the walk from the car to the venue you trip and you fall in a big thing of mud and you're just covered in mud and you're disgusting you're filthy and it's like there's no way there's no way I can go into this wedding party thing now and let's say somebody comes up and they are so gracious and they are so kind and they help remove all of those filthy garments from you, just kind of strip you down. Can you go into the wedding now? No. You got nothing on. Here's what's amazing about this vision is that God doesn't just remove that which is filthy in us. He doesn't just wipe the slate clean, set us up to zero, and then send us out naked, vulnerable, Isn't that what he does? He also clothes us. Look at what he says, verse 4. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head, and they clothed him with garments. The Lord takes away our sin and then clothes us with beauty. So we go from shame to splendor. Not shame to neutral, but shame to splendor. We go from being unacceptable to having the head seat at the table, dirty, filthy, gloriously beautiful. And you wonder, okay, that's an interesting idea. How does he do that? Well, here's what's fascinating. Think about this vision. What does the angel do with the dirty clothes? What happens to the dirty garments? You know where they go? They get put on another Joshua. Centuries after this vision, there's another high priest that comes representing God's people, and his name is Jesus, which is the Hebrew word for Joshua, Yeshua. And he shows up in in pure, clean, righteous garments, meaning he, he perfectly loves God and he perfectly loves his neighbor. He does everything that God designed humanity to do. He doesn't feel that voice of guilt inside of him because his record is clean. And as this high priest comes forward to make an offering to God, you know what happens? It's like he takes off his righteous robes and he gets put on all of our filth, all of our porta-potty Cruelty and selfishness and hatred and perversion, all the things that are wrong with us, he gets draped up in and now he does not belong. Now he is unfit. And so the guards mock him. They laugh at him. They make jokes at his expense. And as he gets strung up on a cross, it's like he is cast out of the party. It's like God is this bouncer and says, you may not come in. You are covered in filth. And he throws him out. He is forsaken from God's presence so that you could be clothed in his righteous robes and be brought in at the head seat of the table. Jesus gets cast out so that you could be brought in. He who is righteous became guilty in God's sight so that you and I who are guilty could become righteous. He who was clean became filthy so that you and I who are filthy might become clean. The glory of the gospel is that we get credit for a life we didn't live, and Jesus gets the blame for a life that he didn't live. In fact, if you look at verse 9, it says that there's this branch, which I know is strange. This is a weird term in the, in the, old, in the old Testament throughout the prophets that's referring to the Messiah, that there's going to be this Messiah, this branch that's going to come in verse 9, and he will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day he will do it. He will do the cleansing. And here's here's the thing. Here's how you get it because you can't do it yourself. Jesus has to do it for you. The way that you get it is that you come before God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Look at, everything is wrong with me. Take my filth, give it to Jesus. Take Jesus's beauty and his record and his righteousness, give it to me. You know what God will say? Done. Pure gift. Now, if that's how you get this cleansing, here's the last question. Who cares? Why does this matter? And here's where I wish I had like three more hours because this really does change everything. You know, if you picture like a lake that's smooth as glass and you throw a giant rock out into the middle of it and it just sends all these ripples in every single direction, when the gospel of grace drops into your soul it ripples out in every single direction it changes everything about you everything but I'm just going to show you two really quick because we don't have three hours so two real quick two images that I didn't talk about in this story that I want to um, show you here's here's the first the first image is in verse 9 it's this it's this image of a stone with seven eyes on it. I mean, this is really weird. I told you this is this is bizarro. But the stone was set in in the in the priest's turban that was that was on their head, and it was kind of right here on their forehead. And the seven eyes thing is confusing. Scholars disagree over what that means. I think it really just means that it, it represents God's lo- looking at it intently. But the, the point is that it's engraved with something. There's this inscription on the. Stone. You don't know what it is. It just says it has this engraved inscription on it. It's this mystery, what's written on it. You don't find out until the end of the story. The last book of the Bible in the book of Revelation, it takes takes up all of this imagery and it tells us that what's written on our foreheads is Christ's name. Now, this is all symbolic. This isn't literal. But but what it's, what it's meaning is that when the gospel of grace gets in you, when you become his, he labels you. He marks you. You are identified as his. You belong to him. And here's what's fascinating. It is written in stone, which means it's secure. You can't screw it up. You can't undo it. You can't mess it all up. It's not like God looks at you and thinks, well, On this particular day, they did pretty good, so I'm going to be a little bit more inclined to be nice to them, and maybe I'll answer some of their prayers. But, you know, this next day when they messed up and screwed up, I'm going to withhold a little bit. Maybe I'll, you know, not be as kind to them. If this thing is written in stone, this means that God's opinion of you does not fluctuate. It does not change day to day. He does not love you any more or any less than he already does because his opinion of you is not based off of you. It's based off of Jesus's righteousness that he earned for you. And if that's true, if that means it is set, if his love and his favor has been indelibly imprinted upon you, do you know what that does? That frees you to rest, that you no longer have to continue the anxious Hustle and hurry of trying to prove to yourself and to everyone around you that you're enough and that you're the right kind of person. it gives you inner spiritual psychological resources to rest you 're free to stop pretending to be somebody that is, is better than you actually are there's, no, there's you're free to stop hiding you're free to own your failures. Because here's what's fascinating. In this story, you know, Satan does have a case. In fact, most of the accusations that he makes against us are probably true. And when you hear those accusations, you hear those voices, it just feels so crushing. But if you believe the gospel, you can say, you know what, everything that you're saying about me is probably true. And guess what? Jesus has an answer for all of them. He's paid for every single one of those accusations. So, yes, in myself, dirty, filthy, but guess what? I'm wearing his righteousness. He's my righteousness. He's my identity. I am in him, and he is in me. Freedom. Now, here's the second image, and then we're done. The second image from the story is um, in verse uh, 10, this vine and fig tree. You see it at the end? In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Now, you might remember this language if you're uh, familiar with Hamilton, the musical. Remember, uh, this language is is sung by George Washington as he is um, stepping down from being president. And he says, I want to sit under my own vine and fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. Remember that? You know that's a Bible verse? You know he's quoting Micah 4-4 in that song in Hamilton, which means that this language of a fig tree and a vine, this is it's threaded all throughout the Bible, and just it's this idea that captures flourishing. Captures it's this idea of shalom, of of abundance. And here's what I want you to notice is that the goodness of the gospel is not intended merely for personal consumption. It's intended to be shared. You see it? It says, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come into this flourishing. God never gives you grace and then just puts a period at the end of the sentence. There's always a comma. He gives you grace so that you would give it away. He never invites you in without also sending you out, which means that this cleansing, this beauty, this glory, this goodness is not just designed for the church. It's designed for our neighbors too, that this whole story is not just for Redeemer, it's also for Midtown. This is why what we do as a church here is we gather together to rest to get off of the hamster wheel, to be reminded of his love and to collapse into his goodness and his favor once again. And then we hang out with one another and we remind each other, right? You are loved. Yes, you are clean. He loves you. He is for you. It's inscribed on your very face. But then what? Then we reflect that love to our friends and to our neighbors. It's too good to just keep for us and so we give ourselves away so that our, our, our neighbors here in Midtown might in some way get a taste, a glimpse of the beauty of this flourishing that, that is offered. That they might see Jesus as more beautiful and believable than maybe they realized before because of the way that we see, they see us loving them, pursuing them, giving our lives away for them. So here's the bottom line. Come to Jesus and be cleansed. And then give it away. That's an invitation for you. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you give us resources that are supernatural, that are beyond us. As we wrestle with our own insecurities, our own sense of being frauds, our own sense of being unclean. That you speak good words to us. You give us permission to rest and to collapse into your arms. Father, I, pr- I pray that you would um, give us a renewed appetite in, the, in the, the sweetness of your grace, that we might drink from it more frequently more deeply, that we might be transformed into every area of our lives, that we would give ourselves away for the one who gave himself away for us. Bless us and keep us, we pray. We pray all this in Jesus' name.
0: Amen.